have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 thebronkcom live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and your perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I'm in, here today in the studio with our esteemed guest, Dr. Daniel Shungu, who is the founding and executive director of a non-government organization called the United Front Against River Blindness. And um, welcome, Dr. Shungu. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And we will lead into talking about river blindness, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to found this um, non-government organization to help um, a major medical issue. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Karp, uh, for this uh, first opportunity to be interviewed in a radio station. I'm Daniel Shungo. I was born in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the first boy of a family of 13 children, eight boys and five girls, born to first-generation Christian parents. Oh, wow, okay. My, our parents were also educated by American Methodist missionaries. And I also followed their footsteps by being educated by American Methodist missionaries as well as American Presbyterian missionaries. And that was, so you grew up sort of, was it a religious schooling or? Yes, okay. yes, it was a religious schooling. Uh, that was both elementary school and also high school. During my junior year in high school, I was fortunate enough to be selected among about five students who were asked to come to United States in a high school exchange program. So I came to United States in 1962 and uh, lived with an American family in Homer, New York, Okay. Where I attended my senior year, my senior year in high school, and finished and graduated. Okay. Was that a, a public high school, or was it also a, a religious school? It was a public high school. Excellent. In Homer, New York. Yes. Okay. And so, from that, you ultimately ended up going to medical school. Ah, uh, that way down the road. <laughs> <laughs> this was a one-year program. Oh, okay. And I was fortunate enough uh, to have been asked to stay for my college education. In other words, 
All the other exchange students had to go back to their countries. And the five of us from the Congo were, because of the turmoil right after independence, the insecurity in the Congo, the five of us from the Congo were allowed to stay for college education. So for the next, uh, what, 10 or 15 years, I was a bookworm from undergraduate to graduate to medical school and so on and so forth. Well, I tell my students here at Ryder to celebrate their inner nerdness. And I think that's I think that's a wonderful thing um, that 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 one can can do that and be successful. Um, and then certainly at some point you ended up going to medical school. Yes. And where did, where did you end up going? Temple. You went to Temple Medical School, and then you ended up seeking employment. Before I finished at Temple, I really was planning on going back to uh, to the Congo. In fact, I made a trip back to the Congo to assess the job market. Mm -hmm. And I met a group of 20 American physicians who were invited by the president of the country to modernize the number one hospital in Kinshasa, the capital city. And I knew at least two of those, the members of that team, and they begged me to go back after I finished at Temple and work with them especially in the area of laboratory medicine. Okay. And then guess what? After I came back to Temple to finish, uh, one of them, Dr. Louis Kanta, uh, called me from McGill University. He said, guess what? Things changed overnight. All 20 of us were forced to leave the country. So I was oh, wow. very, very disappointed because really I was counting on going back to the Congo and uh, serve the country alongside uh, my colleague of mine, wh whom I, I met during that trip. And uh, so what changed was the political environment? Political environment. What happened was that a friend of Mobutu, who was a nurse, saw a golden opportunity to make a lot of money because the hospital was being supported by WHO. So there was a lot of money. So this group of 20 American physicians were on the way. They were a stumbling block. Mm. He could not fulfill his dream. So the next step was to ask them to leave. So that's what happened. So I was very, very disappointed. Mm -hmm. But guess what? About a week or so after this disappointment, uh, Merck got this, no, no, uh, Temple got this letter from Merck. The pharmaceutical company. Pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. They were looking for someone with a background in clinical microbiology and infectious diseases to help them in the development of anti-infective agents. So I applied for that job, and a month later, I was offered the position. The position entailed supporting basic research, clinical research, and marketing. So I had three major bosses, three major departments to report to. Mm -hmm. yes. Right. And so, so what, what's interesting about that is that potential setback, in a sense, opened up a door yes. to the, yes. the, what we're going to be getting to. Amen. In, but that, that's correct. That's to, to, to you're actually, even though you were working in the United States now, um, you came to this thing where you actually have a major effect now 
on what's the, on the health of what's happening to people in the Congo. Exactly. So you exactly. you actually, in a sense, are able to fulfill your original dream in a larger sense a, than you probably originally exactly, imagined. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit. In, the, in this first segment, we want to lay the foundation for sort of the community health stuff we're going to talk about. Is now you found yourself working at Merck, mm-hmm. right? And what, how how do you go from being a physician doing research at Merck to getting back to the Congo? Okay. Something, a big surprise uh, came in 2002. I have two boys. One of them went to Tufts University, and the younger one had just been admitted to Duke University for undergraduate. Not only was he admitted, but he was admitted with a fantastic scholarship. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, congratulations to him, I should say. (laughs) Duke Duke was going to pay practically everything except about Mm $5,000. So I found myself uh, not needing to spend close to $50,000 to support my, per year, to support my second son. So I told myself, this is too good to be true. Things happen for a reason. So without even thinking farther down, I told Merck that I would like to take two-week vacation. So I went to, back to the Congo. I met with the Minister of Health, who was surprised that I was getting back to the country to try to find how I can help the country. He was very busy, so he invited him to have a private breakfast with him. So he told me that if it's true that you would like to do something for the country, I would like you, first of all, to help us with this huge program to control and eventually eliminate river blindness also called onchocerciasis. And he said, before you make up your mind, I would like you to see things with your own eyes. So he arranged for me to go on a field trip, leaving a big city and going all the way to almost the end of the road. And we want to hear about that. But it was very serendipitous that you happened to be working for Merck at that time. And we we will solve a little bit of that mystery right after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp, and we are in the studio today with Dr. Daniel Shungu, who is 
part of the, or the founding and the organizer of an organization, a non-government organization called United Front Against River Blindness. And he is telling us a little bit of his history of how he got involved with this. Um, he is from the Congo, who went to medical school here in the United States, and at one point went back to the Congo to visit to see how he could help. And he met some of the ministers of health there, and we were just hearing about how that conversation went and how it just happened to be a little bit of luck that he was working for Merck at the time that he went. Can you fill in some of those gaps, um, Dr. Shungu? Yes. The uh, minister of health told me that uh, before I make up your, my mind, he would like me to see things with my own eyes. So he arranged for me to go and on And the a things field trip. he wanted you to see are some of the health concerns of the people in the Congo. Yes, yes, because uh, the Minister of Health was already involved in a, a national program to try to control this disease. And this, that's with river blindness? With river blindness, okay. yes, river blindness. So he arranged for me to go on a field trip with uh, Dr. Fortunat Tumba. He was actually leading the best project to control river blindness in the Congo. So Dr. Tumba took me on a 12-day field trip going from a major city and... Uh, Which is in the southern part of the country, if I... It's see. actually in the middle of, uh, oh, in of the middle? DRC, yes, okay. in, in Kasai province. So we left Luluabu, which is the capital city of that province, and we headed about 300 miles away, very close to Chikapa. Okay. And here and there, we were stopping to visit village chiefs and also some of the people affected by river blindness. We also went to Dr. Tumba's own village, and mm -hmm. I met his mother, who was uh, completely blind from river blindness. So what really touched my heart is to see these youngsters, five years old and what have you, spending all day taking care of their blind adults. Mm -hmm. What that means is that they have to abandon schooling, they have to spend the rest of their lives taking care of their relatives, mm -hmm. they are going to become illiterate, Mm -hmm. Right, they're not going to school, and eventually they will have to do the type of chores that the blind adults were doing along the rivers, and get that. Mm -hmm. That's how we get river blindness. Mm -hmm. The vector, the black fly, mm -hmm. live and breathe along fast-flowing rivers, and since everything in Africa is done along those rivers, that's how we get exposed to the vector and get the disease. And so I was going to ask you a little bit about that. River blindness is not something that you're born with. It's not a genetic disease. No. It's an acquired disease that is transmitted by flies. Exactly. The, the, these tiny black flies are the vectors. Okay. And what these flies do, in a sense, analogous to people might be familiar with malaria and mosquitoes, mm -hmm. is the mosquitoes transmit a sort of a parasite mm -hmm. into humans. Exactly. And yes. tell us a little bit about that, that life cycle of the parasite that comes from these flies. Yes, the black fly uh, bites the victim, the person, the unfortunate victim, and then deposits, deposit a little bit of the parasite, Oncocerca vulvarus, under the skin. 
The strange thing is that only the female black fly transmits the disease. Uh, the female black fly must have human blood in order for the eggs in her to mature and hatch. So she feels the urge of biting a person so that she can get the human blood. But unfortunately, in trying to get human blood, since that fly is already infected, she leaves the parasite, Onchoceca vulvarus, subcutaneously in the uh, skin of the, in the uh, victim. In, in, the, in the human. In the human. Yeah. And then the, the, the parasite goes through several stages. The, some of the initial symptoms are the intense itch. Okay. And then eventually the parasite goes uh, into the, the body and then is going to be lodged subcutaneously. And the par most of them will be eliminated by the immune response. Mm -hmm. But some of them, the ones that escape their immune response are going to mature into adult worms. And from those subcutaneous sites, those adult worms will pair, male and female, and start producing macrophilarias, mm -hmm. macroscopic larvae. And those macrophilarias that are produced by the millions, the thousands and millions, are the ones that are caused the disease. The intense itch that people, for which people use knives and rocks to, uh, to scratch themselves, Eventually, those macrophilarias are going to get into the level of the optic nerve and then uh, destroy the optic nerve. So, and then the people will go blind. Yes. And so when, when they start out as these subcutaneous um, sort of infect, people have bumps. It's very, very yes, itchy. Yes, yes. You can and it's, probably, it's usually not just one bite. No, people no, no, no. Bit, no. Bit by lots of flies. Yes, yes. You actually, people can have up to 200 nodules. We call them nodules, where those adult uh, worms are located. And they don't move. They are actually localized. And from that site, from the nodules, they produce hundreds and hundreds of macrophilarias. And the macrophilarias are the ones that cause the disease. So the Merck, the mode of action of the Merck drug is to kill the macrophilarias. And so let's take, take back a little bit a second. Yes. So you are an employee of Merck who goes back to the Congo and you want to help in some way. Yes. And you, did you right away make the connection? Oh my God, the company that I work for has like this drug that might be able to help these people. Like how did that connection happen? Yes. Um, actually the minister of health who suggested the project to me has already heard about Merck working on the drug that is going to be used for rebel blindness. So he actually asked me about it. And I, since I knew a little bit about it, I told him that, yes, that's true. And not only that, I believe that Merck is going to make it a donation. Instead of selling the drug, Merck is going to make it a gift. Okay? So, let, so, let, so for just for completeness, the drug that we're talking about yes. is ivermectin. Exactly. And so many of the people who are, might be listening to this show, how might they have heard of ivermectin? There was a version. Uh, the initial uh, family of um, ivermectins was used by Merck for animal health. So it's a vet they had this veterinary medicine. Exactly. Okay. For, dog, uh, for horses, for dogs, and mm -hmm. what have you. Mm -hmm and really was very, very effic efficacious for both 
endo and ectoparasite. So it's a, it's a, it's what somebody who might not be in the biomedical world be used for the treating a parasitic infection yes. in their pets or their exactly, animals. Exactly, exactly. And parasites are parasites. And so the drug also works for parasites that affect humans as well. Exactly. And so, I like, so here we are. It's like an MD from Merck goes back to his native country, the Congo, and says, how can I help? And the connection is made. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But let, let, me, let, me, let me add something else here. Yeah. Uh, there was a Merck scientist, uh, Dr. Bill Kempo, mm -hmm. who, was a very, who was a very, very good parasitologist, and who... No, uh, being very good in parasitology, saw a connection between a parasite that causes disease in horse and Oncocerca vulvarus that causes river blindness in human. So from that connection, he wanted, he actually went ahead and do, did a, a laboratory test to see whether the small amount of the Oncocerca vulvus he had in the lab would react to the avermectin. And God behold, that's exactly what happened. He put some of that uh, avermectin in a petri dish with a lawn of Oncocerca vulvus, and overnight everything was wiped out. Wow. So he went to Dr. Roy Vagelos, who mm -hmm. was then the, the, uh, the CEO of Merck, and told him exactly what happened. So very quickly, they all agreed to start a very small clinical try in Gambia. Okay. In human. In humans. Yes. And then the results that was, were obtained within a very short period were amazing. Very, very amazing. So with WHO approval, the drug now called Mectazen, a version of avermectin, was approved for human use. Very, very exciting. Very exciting. And, the, and, and some of these scientists got recognized for this. Of you course, <laughs> uh, Dr. Bill Campbell, <laughs> in 2015, won the Nobel Prize in medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And this is sort of interesting how that sometimes happens. Exactly. And we want to hear more about this, but more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 The Bronx. Healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. We are in the studio today talking about Dr. Daniel Shongu's sort of efforts to treat river blindness in the Congo. And I want to point out that the disease we're talking about, this parasitic infection, is not unique to the Congo. It's not even unique to sort of, to sort of Africa. Um, it's also been in Central America. It's been in South America. And in some of these countries, the efforts and the kinds of things we're going to hear from Dr. Shungo have been so successful that in some countries it's been eradicated. And that's one of his goals going forward, um, that hopefully someday it will be eradicated in the Congo, too, and we want to hear about his efforts. And he's being very, very, very modest, but um, I did see, like, your website, 
um, in 2018, over 17 million people That's have been treated with That's this, um, I, I don't want to overuse the word, but a drug that here in the United States um, was primarily used for veterinary purposes mm -hmm. that, um, as we were hearing at the end of the last segment, was sort of discovered that can help people. Mm -hmm. And the person who did this actually ultimately won a Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine. Amen. And, uh, amen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and I happen to know you know this guy oh, uh, very, very, very well because yeah. you, you helped bring him to Ryder University last year. Exactly. Um, and we were very thankful to that. I was one of the people in the audience, and I very much enjoyed uh -huh. it. It was very impressive listening to a Nobel Prize winner. Um, but you were telling us a little bit about the efforts um, to treat the people mm -hmm. who have river blindness. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about that in the sense that uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in the, in the, in, in between segments, I was saying, this is one of the most successful community health mm -hmm. efforts mm -hmm. um, on a, on a national scale that I can imagine. Yes, uh, uh, th that's true. <laughs> Having such a fantastic drug and making a gift to the needy. By, by the way, river blindness is endemic in 30 African countries and uh, six Central South American countries and also Yemen. Uh, and the Merck donation, the commitment by Merck is to provide this drug free of charge to all these countries until the disease is controlled and also eliminated. So people can get down on corporate America, a pharmaceutical company, yeah. but... At some point, some yes. of these heads of the pharmaceutical company did make a humanitarian decision to help people, yes. irrespective of borders, irrespective of wars, irrespective that's of religion. And that's, especially in today's world, amazing. Amazing. Yes. This is a herd of decision. People to Merck. help people. And from year to year, Merck has renewed its commitment to provide this drug until the disease is eliminated. I'm going to come out later on. It's, now it's not just one disease. There's another disease that responds to the same drug, and Merck has made a commitment to support the elimination of that other disease also. Excellent. Uh, but anyway, since the drug is very safe and very efficacious, WHO said that uh, let's empower people in the community to lead the distribution of this drug. We don't need medically trained people to be directly involved in the distribution. So what we do is to, as NGOs, is to train the medical staff that uh, are working in those areas. By training, we mean uh, explaining about the drug, about the disease, and then the strategy for distributing the drug. And then those medical staff that we have just trained are going to train what we call community distributors. And the rule of thumb is that there should be one community distributor for every 100 people mm -hmm. in the village. Now, let me ask this. So you're, you create a program where the, you know, the, the doctors and the scientists mm -hmm. train people in the areas, and mm -hmm. then they send these other people will send people in the communities out mm -hmm. to administer this drug. Exactly. Now, is this a kind of drug where you give one, like one and done, you, you give one dose of this drug, and then you're cured forever? How does this work? Okay. The drug must give a uh, giving once uh, once a year by mouth 
and also the dose is determined by height. So how big you are? Y yes, mm -hmm. uh, 90 centimeter, one pill, 120, two pills, 140, three pills, 160 and above, four pills. Mm -hmm. There's an equivalent in weight, but the WHO reason that for weight, you have to use a balance. Mm -hmm. But who in this very remote area is going to ensure <laughs> that those balances are, are, are properly cut? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But the height approach really has been very well, very, very used, mm -hmm. and it's working uh, like a charm. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, one of the first things that this community distributor do is to go from household with, to household with a notebook. And then they put everybody's name, starting with the father, the mother. In some areas, the father has several wives. So under uh, the name of each wife, there will be the children. So when the community distributor, uh, as we call them CDs, come back with the drug, they pull out that notebook and then go down the list one by one, giving everybody the drug to make sure that they actually take Everybody, it with yeah. water, yes. Was there a, a significant amount of education to overcome to allow these people, especially in more remote villages, to allow somebody to come yes. in and give them yes, medicine? Yes, or? yes, yes. Yeah. First of all, uh, the disease is theft. The disease has existed for centuries. Mm -hmm. So many of these people believe that you become blind because you did something wrong to your neighbor your friend, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So there was, there was superstition yes, exactly, built around this disease. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. That was a mindset that was a little bit difficult to change. Yes. But using the charts and also showing them the life cycle of the parasites and where the rivers and so on and so forth fit in, slowly but surely they come to understand. They recognize those uh, thousands of black flies that bite them day in, day out. Nonsense. Mm. So uh, the other side of the coin is that the drug, once you take it within maybe a day or so, the intense itch that is oh, one of the property yeah. of, of the disease stop. They each will stop completely, okay? And also, some of the intestinal worms, such as Ascaris and what have you, start coming out from the other end. So people come to love this drug for these other biological properties that are so, so good. Yeah, and they recognize pretty much very quickly, right yes, away. Yes, exactly. Right, so that, that's good. <laughs> that, that helped. It's yes. really a miracle drug. It's really a miracle drug. But uh, but anyway, and so you know the Congo is a big country. Yes, and I saw an estimate about the community volunteers you have, and it's now there's like forty five thousand of them. Is that is that is that a fair number? Yeah, no, no, no. Actually, it's more than that. It's more than that now. Uh, in two thousand and eighteen, we trained six thousand five hundred medical staff, and they in turn trained one hundred wow one hundred sixty eight. Thousand community distributors. Wow. Yes. That's that's a lot of people. That's a lot of that's, education going on. Yes. In this effort, it's sort of like I was saying before, one of the most successful like community educate because it's not just getting the medicine to people. It's 
getting people to overcome yes. generations of superstition, mm -hmm. getting people to buy in, getting mm -hmm. people not just to do this. I mean, every year mm -hmm. they have to come back and what, for 10 to 15 years you have to do this? Yes, 10 to 15 years because the lifespan of the adult worm is 10 to 15 years. And the, the drug does not affect the adult worms. The drug affects the macrophilaries. The larvae is produced by the adult worms. So we have to keep on giving the drug until the adult worms die on their own. Um, the, there are some yeah. efforts that are being now spent to try to come up with a drug that is going to affect the adult ones. Which is, which is pretty interesting. And so you created the organization, the United Front Against River Blindness, which has a great website. Um, the World Health Organization has recognized your or organization. And I know there's other organizations mm -hmm. that do the same sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, but you've concentrated on the, on the Congo. And we yeah. want to hear more about these things. You have some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 The Bronx. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. Sciences. 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7 TheBronc.com, live from Killarney's Public Health Studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today with Dr. Daniel Shungu, um, who runs the United Front Against River Blindness, which is a non-government organization that is deceptively large, and he's very, very modest. But if you went to the World Health Organization, you would find this uh, listed there and sort of their efforts to treat river blindness. Dr. Shungu's efforts are primarily in the Congo, but we heard before that river blindness affects people in Central and South America and Yemen and Africa. It's sort of a parasitic infection without boundaries. And one of the greatest successes of the United Front Against River Blindness is the community outreach approach um, and the education approach, and it's building trust between the medicine, the scientists, and people in the communities, both in the cities and in rural places that might not have the education. And Dr. Shungu, tell us a little bit about like how this how this program might be applied. Or you mentioned there might be other diseases that can be built this way. You have a, a system now in place in the Congo. Are there ways that this model can be used to help people? Uh, yes, this uh, model of uh, empowering people in the community to uh, be in the driver's seat, to actually lead the distribution of the drug has worked so well with just one disease that uh, uh, WHO has encouraged us and have actually provided guidelines to apply the same model to control and eventually eliminate other so-called neglected tropical diseases. And the examples uh, is the lymphatic filariasis, also called elephantiasis. Hmm, okay. Another disease is schistosomiasis, which uh, actually may affect the urinary tract as, as well as the GI tract. And also the trachoma, another eye disease. 
and uh, finally all of the intestinal worms, mm. uh, the trematodes and what have you, uh, nematodes. The advantage, one of the big advantages that um, other pharmaceutical com companies that produce drugs for these other diseases have agreed to follow Merck's example. Oh, okay, excellent. They all have agreed to provide their drug free of charge. This was actually uh, made officially uh, in London, in, in London in 2012, I believe. There was a meeting of all of the stakeholders, the donors, the pharmaceutical companies, the Minister of Health, and everybody else, the NGOs, and they reviewed the data on river blindness, and they, the data were very excited. So they told themselves, they, they made a declaration that they are going to commit to go after four other, no, about nine other neglected tropical diseases using the same community-based platform. But right now we are focusing on five diseases. In addition to river blindness, we uh, distribute the drug for uh, lymphatic filariasis or elephantiasis, the drug for schistosomiasis, the drug for trachoma, and also the drug for all of the intestinal worms. Um, and the, uh, WHO believe that these five diseases actually contribute to about 90% of the poverty in Africa. Wow. Can we imagine what will happen if we can control and eventually eliminate these five diseases? Yeah. A lot of people would have much higher quality of exactly, life. Exactly, yes. exactly. And so the so partnerships seem to be the key. The to this partnership book. is the key. And let me comment a little bit about that. UFA, United Front, against river blindness started very, very small. We only supported one project back in 2006 to 2007. But there are three major international NGOs that realized what UFA was doing in DRC. They have never been involved in DRC. So they approached UFA to see whether we could establish some kind of partnership. So. The first big NGO that approached us was SAR Savior, based in UK. And through SAR Savior, we were able to add two additional projects. By project, I mean a whole area that is led by one MD, uh, a team of uh, directed by one MD that covers that whole region. Okay. Um, and then, that was in 2011. In 2012, Enfund, based in New York City, approached us, and we now have a partnership agreement signed with Enfund. With, through Enfund, we added about four additional projects. In 2016, Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, based in UK, uh -huh. approached us and we signed an agreement with uh, Schistosomiasis Control Initiative. And through that agreement, we added about eight or nine additional projects. And then finally, I think in 2016, 17, there's an organization called GiveWell, 
okay. based in the United States. We also signed an agreement with them, and we added additional projects. So now we are supporting 15 projects. Wow, and they're all based on this model of community yes. health, yes. community health, yes. um, people being involved, not people from the outside not people imposing from the outside. themselves in the community. No, it's the community people helping those itself. villages, the community distributors are, are selected by the chief of the villages. Mm -hmm. with his blessing or her blessing, that they are going to stay with us for forever right. until the disease is... Uh, and so how, how are these uh, community distributors, how are, are they paid? Are they, very how are they compensated? Point. Very good point, very good point. Uh, basically, the community distributors are not paid. We don't pay them. Uh, WHO reasoning was that... Um, uh, they are doing very good work for their community, but in Africa, basically, when you do something good, wh whomever you are doing good, doing good to is going to reciprocate. So often those community distributors are paid through a chicken, fish, plantains, rice, peanuts, and so on and so forth. So it has been working very nicely. However, there are areas that times where the community distributors are not that well compensated. So we have had cases of attritions, community mm -hmm. distributor abandoning a project to go to another project. The other challenge was that some of the other prog uh, pro uh, pro programs, such as HIV AIDS, mm -hmm. have a lot of money. So they have been giving those community <laughs> distributor funds, and those community distributors have been going to them instead of staying with us. Staying with us. It's a little competition. But, but yes. But we have asked the Minister of Health. In fact, WHO is asking the Minister of Health of each country to decide exactly how this should be handled. And I think some of the countries have a pretty good program now where the Minister of Health is, has a pretty equitable approach to that. No paying. If they are paying, they are also be right. paying the uh, those that are involved in river planets. Mm -hmm. So I think this is working very nice. And so humans being humans, yes. people want to help their communities. They yes. want to cure diseases, yes. but they also want to be compensated of in, in some way. <laughs> in some way. People that's, are people. That's true. Absolutely. We, we understand that. <laughs> Especially now that the same community had distributed drugs for four different diseases. Right. So I think it really de definitely makes sense for them to, to be compensated and, and that building of trust in the community, that mm -hmm. partnership, is, um, I mean, you, you're being very, very modest, but this is a model that is mm -hmm. having success on an international very level, exactly. and you have been sort of at the forefront of that, that, you know, it, people know what, it's, it's just, it's working, and it, exactly. it's, it's phenomenal, and it's part of what the HSI is sort of hoping mm -hmm. to do, sort of on a smaller scale here scale. in New Jersey at Ryder, is make connections between people, bring mm -hmm. people together to solve very, very complex mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. Um, and like you said, when you first went back to the Congo, you had no idea that, you know, 15 years later, you, no, you'd be doing no, this. No, And no, that's pretty I'm, I'm amazing. Sure. No, it's so, just very amazing. So in, in the last little bit, can you reflect on that, please? Just, yes, I think, I think um, now that we have been distributing at least Mechtism for, for over 10 years, we are going back and trying to, um, to do the impact assessment. This is very powerful. It's also very emotional. People who are relating, who are 
giving gratitude, uh, thanking us for what we have uh, done. We have completely changed their, their lives. We have given them hope. Uh, an example is a, is a lady by, by the name Mary, who, uh, because of the skin conditions uh, that became very ugly, uh, her husband left her. And then she was one of the first who volunteered to give her story. He said, look at me, look at my skin now. Uh, uh, really, when this program started, it was very, very bad. And my husband left me and so on and so forth. My challenge now is to say no to these young and old men who are after me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a, that's a great yes. that's a great story. There are all kinds <laughs> of stories really that make us realize that it's all worth it. It I, was not easy. It was very very challenging, but it's it was really worth it. Yeah. So uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Shungu. Um, unfortunately, we are out of time. Mm. Uh, 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from Killarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University Health Study Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health care. I hope today's program has helped inform you about how the United Front Against River Blindness has applied that same model in the Congo to great success and is ever much expanding. Mm -hmm. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Daniel Shungo, for coming, and I'm looking forward to having more conversations after the formal radio program is over. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Rider, please email us at hsi at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Rider University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academic Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.